Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Sentner Geology Podcast, Episode 35, Contour Lines. Thanks for listening. Contour Lines. Contour Lines. Sounds pretty boring to me. Uh, are we really doing this? Yeah, I think we are. Uh, this is continuing the Geology 101 Lab sermons that uh, we give at the beginning of our individual lab sessions. Uh, but after doing that, I think I'd like to talk about how we use contour lines in the field on topographic maps. And that will spin into kind of a view of kind of field mapping and how to teach field courses uh, and how to transition away from these contour lines, which is so very 20th century. So that's the plan today. We'll see how it goes. Um, sure glad you're listening. Uh, let's go ahead and get started by uh, gathering uh, Geology 101 lab students. Uh, thank you for being here again. Hey, you didn't drop the lab. Good for you. This is week two. So last week we were dealing with our topographic maps by looking at latitude and longitude, by looking at a scale of maps, of different kinds of maps, and then dimensional analysis. Um, and podcast listener, that was last episode called Topographic Maps. Well, we're back talking about topographic maps again this week, but for the first time looking at these brown lines that are squirrely all over the map. The brown lines on this map, the main feature of a topographic map are these contour lines, these brown lines. Occasionally they're blue when the lines cross glacial ice, but for the most part they're brown. Contour lines. Great. So what is the fundamental role of a topographic map? Well, it's a flat map. It's a flat piece of paper. Fine. But if you become skilled at reading an old school topographic map and you get skilled at reading these contour lines, you can visualize the terrain as you scan that topographic map. Just Easily, you can see in three dimensions, essentially. Oh, yeah, there's a big ridge top. Oh, God. My Lord, that, that is a hell of a drop-off there. We can't go that way. We're going to die. Oh, it's boring and flat here. Oh, there's a big river valley that's kind of got a strange shape to it. That's the idea, by reading these lines. Okay, well, let's break it down. Each of those contour lines, each of those brown lines, is a line that connects points of equal elevation. Again... Contour lines connect points of equal elevation. Let's think about that. If we get out in real life and start walking a contour line and never stray from that one brown contour line, that means we're never going up, we're never going down. Every step on that contour line, every step on that path has the same elevation. If you're a smart, have you been hiking? Have you been with a smart hiker? You're bushwhacking now. You're off trail. And instead of just doing a beeline for that peak that you're heading for, and beeline meaning you're just heading straight uh, to that landmark, to that destination, uh, the dumb hikers are just going to just go straight. And so then they're, they're doing all this extra work. They're going up, they're going down, they're going through the brush, they're going up and over with a bare exposed rock. 
But the smart hiker doesn't go straight ahead. They contour. They follow the flow of the landscape, and they minimize the expenditure of energy. Now, maybe you're... um, can't think of the word. Maybe you're hard on yourself and you really want to make sure that you work as hard as possible. Well, then by all means, go straight ahead for that landmark. But if you're smart and semi-lazy like I am, uh, follow the contours. You'll save yourself a lot of sweat. Okay, great. If that's the goal, maybe you want to sweat. Okay, don't, don't have to go there. Okay, wonderful. So those brown lines, each of those brown lines is Uh, a line that connects points of equal elevation. But there's more than one line. There's a bunch of these lines, and most of the brown lines do not have numbers on them. They're just brown lines. But occasionally, some of those lines do have a stamped number right on them. Maybe it's 1,000. Maybe it's 1,500. Maybe it's 4,000. What does that mean? Well, If you have a contour line that has the number 4,000 stamped on it, that means that every point on that contour line is exactly 4,000 feet above sea level. Okay? And then there's, in the neighborhood, a contour line that has the number 3,000 stamped on it. Well, we know what that means. But a bunch of the lines in between the 4,000 and the 3,000 do not have numbers on them. How can we figure out what the elevation of those lines are? Well, there's something called a contour interval. And if you feel like being lazy, again, if that's the theme of this episode, then um, you can just go back down to the bottom of that topographic map, uh, ignore the bar scale, remember. Uh, We like ratio scales. That's the last episode. But there's also literally uh, the words contour interval equals... 20 feet, or contour interval of this map is 50 feet. What is a contour interval? The contour interval is the elevation change between lines. If you jump from one brown line to the next, the contour interval is, if you go from one line to the next, how much elevation are you changing? Are you going up 50 feet? Are you going up 20 feet? Are you going up 100 feet? That's the map maker's choice based on how much ground uh, she's covering. Okay, good. So even though we don't have a number stamped on every one of these lines, we can determine the elevation of each brown line by using the contour interval because the map, mapers, the map maker is not going to change the contour interval within the map. If it's 20 feet elevation change between two brown lines is going to be 20 feet elevation change between all brown lines on that map. Now again, if we go to a different map with a different contour interval, we have to keep that in mind. But the contour interval remains steady throughout the map, and therefore we can deal with a bunch of brown lines that don't have numbers and still be very confident with their elevation. Are we good so far? Because in this lab today, you're going to be working with determining elevations of a lot of points, and that's what we're going to do next. And we we could talk about that. If you happen to uh, try to figure out an elevation of a backcountry chalet, and there's one little black uh, square uh, showing that backcountry chalet, uh, it's a small hut, let's say, backcountry hut, Um, if the black square is 
plumb right on one of those brown lines, then determining the elevation of the hut is easy. You just figure out what the elevation of that brown line is. For instance, uh, if it's a... Well, actually, let's do this. Let's say there's a 20-foot contour interval, and we have uh, a heavy brown line with the number 1,000 on it, 1,000, and the next heavy brown line has uh, 2,000. Oh, shit, that's wrong. Hang on. I'm trying to do this off top. Oh, yeah, got it. So if you got one heavy brown line that's 1,000 feet, the next heavy brown line is... 1100 feet how many light brown lines are we going to have between the two heavies so the the uh, i just kind of casually threw this in that we have brown lines of different strengths we have heavy brown lines that usually have labels and we have light brown lines that are the uh, contour lines that that don't have numbers on them so for a contour interval is 20 feet and we have a thousand foot stamped and eleven hundred stamped. How many light brown lines between those two? Students always screw this up. What's the answer? How many light brown lines between the two heavies? The answer is four. Four light brown lines. Because if the contour interval is twenty feet, we're going to go a one thousand heavy. 1,020, first light brown line, 1,040, next light brown line, 1,060, 1,080, and then we get to 1,100. At least at Central Washington University, that's a bridge too far. They can even see the, well, let's not go there. All right, good. So determining elevations of points that happen to be right on lines, that's easy. But what if we're trying to figure out the elevation of a point that's not actually on a line? Well, we need to know the contour interval, don't we? We need to know how much wiggle room we have. And let's say in that scenario I just painted that we have a 20-foot contour interval and we have four light brown lines between two heavies, 1,000 and the other heavy is 1,100. Let's say our hut is between 1,100 and 11... Shit. Let's say it's between 1,000... This is an explicit podcast. Sorry, I need to change my uh, data given to iTunes and other things. Uh, mature subject matter for okay I'm sorry I've just got to I just woke up man what am I swearing for that's my bad that's on me I, I tap my chest that's me my point is if you have a hut between two brown lines you can determine the elevation of that hut but it's got to be within 20 feet and again, students mess up when they try to figure out the elevation of a hut, and it's between two brown lines, and yet they pick 1,020 or 1,040 for some frickin' reason. It can't be 1,020. Your hut is not on a line. If the hut's between 1,020 and 1,040, then what's the answer for the elevation of the hut? Well, it's, I guess it's 1,030. Or 1,025, 
Or what's the lowest possible possible elevation of the hut? Well, I guess it's uh, 1,021. But it can't be 1,020. It's not on the damn line. Contour lines bringing out the anger in me this morning. All right. A um, couple final things to say about Geology 101 lab treatment of contour lines to get ready for the lab of the day. Uh, when you look at the kind of clustering of brown lines or spacing out of brown lines, we can make some general comments. And this should make sense to you. I hope it makes sense to you. If you have a bunch of contour lines all bunched together, like we're just looking at a, a seven and a half minute quadrangle, uh, produced by the U.S. Geological Survey back in 19, I don't know, 33. And uh, we've got little towns, we've got some rail lines, we've got uh, uh, creeks uh, marked on the map, uh, etc. Maybe some benchmarks. And, and then um, you've got this, this, let's say, the lower third of the map has just a bunch of contour lines, a bunch of brown lines all kind of drawn in there parallel to each other almost. They're squiggling, and the next one squiggles about the same, etc. But the spacing between those brown lines, whether they're heavy or light, the spacing of them is, is quite compact. And yet in the northern, let's say, two-thirds of this quadrangle we're looking at, uh, there's not nearly as many brown lines, and they're spaced out quite a bit. They're not bunched. They're spread out. And there's a lot of uh, open white space in between some of those brown lines. What does that mean about the terrain? What can you visualize about that area? How would you compare? If you're hiking or if you're sledding, uh, if it's wintertime, uh, you got it? Here's the answer, in case you don't have it. That lower third of the map is steep. If the contour lines are bunched together, that means you're changing a lot of elevation in a relatively small area. That means if you have a sled, you're going to pick up some speed, man. If you're sledding only in the northern two-thirds of the map area, you're not going to move. It's flat, or there's a very, very subtle slope to the area. In some cases, you have a cliff, and the cliff is so precipitous that the contour lines are just on top of each other, essentially. So there's, there's lots of subtlety. There's amazing subtlety. And we can transition now to being out in the field and teaching geology in the field or taking uh, a field course. And I've always been uh, kind of staggered. You're out in the absolute middle of nowhere. You just can't imagine anybody's ever been out there. And yet here's this topographic map you're holding with um, amazing precision with the patterns of these brown lines and and uh, you're like, who is out here? Like, how, how did they do this in 1914? I've got this really old topographic map, let's say. Uh, you know, they, they don't have airplanes or anything. How are they doing this? Well, the answer is I don't really know, uh, but that, that'll transition us a little bit. So um, you remember I had some episodes on J. Harlan Bretz, and one of the famous parts of the Bretz saga is that he became interested in the weirdness of Eastern Washington geology by seeing a, a newly published uh, topographic map 
uh, in the Quincy, Washington area in 1910, I believe, is the, is the date for the quad. And, and these were coming up, you know, so literally there were surveying crews uh, for the United States Geological Survey. Again, 1910, 1908, 1915, that um, they're barely getting themselves out to these areas. I don't even know how they're doing that. There aren't many roads or rail lines, but they get out there, and then I, I have mild interest in in kind of learning how they actually created these topographic maps, but that's another episode for another day if I ever do figure that out. But the point is, Brett's uh, was going to the University of Washington's library regularly looking for new books, new scientific papers, etc., and essentially looking for the latest topographic maps to come out. And he found this 1910 Quincy area topographic map, and he was stunned by looking at the spacing of the contour lines, knowing how to read those contour lines and visualizing the landscape. Uh, He saw this incredible desert area he assumed it was eastern washington and yet there was this huge cliff with this canyon and this very impressive um canyon with a flat floor and there was no river there and there were actually like these uh brown lines that were circles with little hashes going towards the inside of the circle meaning it was a depression and he found these huge kind of depressions at the base of this big cliff. And he's like, oh, my God, this looks like Niagara Falls. This looks like some sort of old river system. Uh, excuse me, old, old waterfall. Um, he had not seen topographic maps like the Quincy map um, anywhere else. And he remember, he had been done some mapping in, in Michigan. He'd been doing some mapping in South Puget Sound uh, and I assume he other areas as well. In his training, he became proficient at reading contour lines on topographic maps, and he was uh, mesmerized by this quadrangle. And a few years later, he finally got out there, and it was a key part of putting his Ice Age flood story together. Okay, uh, so that gets us to being in the field with topographic maps. So let me comment on my experience as a student and then a teacher of field geology. So some of you are former geology students. You have fond memories, most of you, of your time as a, as a geology student. And most of those memories go right, right to your field course. If you've never been in a geology program, uh, the traditional thing worldwide, I think, but at least in the, in the, in the U.S., is that you do your four years of study in the classroom, maybe a couple of weekend trips here and there, depending on which school you go to, but it is customary that you do a summer field class as kind of a capstone experience, meaning it's kind of a culminating uh, thing that you do in the summer before your senior year, or in my case, in many people's cases, you actually do the field class um, as your last class, like even after the graduation ceremonies, you're out there for five weeks or six weeks or seven weeks, depending on your school, maybe just a month. Uh, but it's traditional training uh, to, to make geologic maps in the field. And how do you do it? 
Well, in my case, it was Park City, Utah. I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and uh, our field camp uh, was uh, up above um, Salt Lake City in the Wasatch Mountains, beautiful area. Uh, We stayed in Park City and took vans up into the uh, Wasatch, and there were field mapping areas, so you're out there hiking. Uh, many geology students, especially from the Midwest, didn't have a lot of experience, including me, hiking in the mountains. So that was an experience, number one. And then you're given, you guessed it, topographic maps of a particular area. And maybe there was a pre-course back on campus where you were taught some of this basic contour line stuff I was just briefly talking about. And so there you are, breathing the fresh mountain air, and you're listening to the Uh, birds that you don't understand and you're seeing all these wildflowers that you've never seen before and you're just overwhelmed with all the beauty and all the uh, kind of uh, pristine conditions of everything Uh, but then it's time to get to work man here's your topographic map here's your field mapping partner or a group of people and uh, your task for today or maybe it's a three-day mapping exercise is to plot geology information onto your topographic map. In other words, your base map is a topographic map. This is the way it's been done for most of the 20th century. Plotting geology on the topographic map. So, of course, that means you have to read the contour lines well enough to locate yourself on the map. Not an easy task. Once you locate yourself, of course, if you're working with a few people or maybe you just have a mapping partner, there's a lot of arguing. I think we're here. No, I think we're here. Then your instructor comes over and says, well, where do you think you guys are? It's like, well, and then you put your little pencil tip on it. Don't you see that uh, there's that little draw, there's a little squiggle in your contour line. That means there's a little bit of a little bit of a gully right here. I think you're just to the west of that. So there's a lot, you know, that's... That, forget about the geology. That's just getting yourself tuned into the subtleties of that topographic map. Then let's say you can locate yourself accurately using triangulation or using just horse sense or whatever. Uh, next step then is to plot the geology. Well, get your hammer out. Let's. We got an outcrop here. Let's actually bust open the rock. Try to identify it. That's coming in this podcast, by the way, listener. I think we'll we'll do some basics on rock ID. <laughs> I have no idea how that's going to work, but we'll try it. Everything else seems to be working for folks, even though we don't have. Um, we're not out there together in the field. Um, where was I? Yeah, so so bust open the rock. Okay, oh, good Lord, we got porphyritic rhyolite here. Porphyritic rhyolite. We'll put that in your field notebook, and then we're going to mark our location on the map, and we're going to have some sort of symbol for porphyritic rhyolite. And then as we go to the next little knob, different place, different contour line, different pattern, whatever. Okay, different spot on our topographic map. Oh, shit, we've got uh, granite. We don't have porphyritic rhyolite. So put a little symbol, locate yourself, put that geology information on your map and in your notebook, and then we need a contact. We need a geologic contact. We need a line drawn onto our topographic map base between those two points because somewhere between point A and point B, we changed. We left the porphyritic rhyolite and we got into this granite. So we got to draw a line, draw a fence between those two things. These are incredibly basic skills, 
And yet it takes days, sometimes weeks, to get people rolling with confidence and with basic ability to plot geologic information, let alone putting in faults or strike and dip symbols or other things we could talk about later if you like. The point is, I was taught in Utah to plot geology on a topographic map, and then a few years later, it's time for me to be a teacher. And at Central Washington University, we've had a summer field class, like I just described, for seniors about to graduate or before their senior year. Uh, Our summer field class was five weeks. The first three weeks taught in Mitchell, Oregon, in conjunction with Oregon State University. And by the way, that's the case with University of Washington, Wisconsin, too, back in 1985 when I took my course. 1986, excuse me. Who cares? Uh, University of Wisconsin had a joint field camp between, and I mean joint literally, by the way, uh, between Wisconsin Iowa and University of Minnesota Duluth. There were like 85 people in our field camp. I remember there was literally uh, Charlie Match uh, using a, a like a field megaphone. Uh, what do you call those things? You like squeeze on it and it amplifies your voice. It's got that's like an old school um, megaphone made out of cardboard or whatever. It's early. Anyway. Uh, Central has three weeks with Oregon State at Mitchell using topographic map bases. And then the final two weeks, uh, our guys leave, our guys and gals leave Oregon State folks and go to Central Idaho and use Idaho State's field camp near Mackey, Idaho. And that's a magnificent location. And that's where I did my graduate school work at Idaho State, so... Those are my my folks. Um, so did I teach that class? I did not. We had other folks teaching our summer field, our, our traditional field map. What I started with Charlie Rubin back in the day was an introduction to field methods course, meaning you're just getting interested in geology. You just ju- you just took geology 101, maybe one other class. You're pretty sure you want to do this, but you're not sure. My philosophy was, as a teacher and an advisor, well, let's not screw around. Let's go out and do this for real. If we can get you out there doing this and collaborati- uh, working collaboratively with, with other brand new geology students, and we can be in a beautiful place a long way from home, um, you're going to be with us for sure. You're going to be super jazzed about this whole geology thing, or we'll never see you again because you hated it, because it was hot and you got dirty and you were frustrated by the level of complexity in the field and all that. So that introduction to field methods, Charlie used to call it baby field, uh, was taught the first two weeks of September every year, right before our fall quarter began. First two weeks of September every year. And I did that class out of Owens Valley in California. We stayed at the White Mountain Research Station, three miles to the east of downtown Bishop, California, out on East Line Street. Wonderful people, wonderful food. Uh, It was a Cadillac experience in many ways. Uh, And every day we took our 25 students in three vans, typically, out to the field area. 
whether it was Fish Springs cinder cone or um, the Big Pine mapping area or the famous Polita Folds up and over West Guard Pass. Uh, we copied the, the course, by the way, from Stanford and Joe Roots long ago. But the point is, we were using topographic maps as bases. And we had our students uh, every September, brand new crop. And um, if you are a former geology student, you remember how pure that experience was, for good or for bad, but mostly for good. And by pure, I mean um, there's no more trying to visualize stuff in a classroom. Uh, we're out there, out there on that windy ridge in a hot afternoon. Uh, Owens Valley in, in September can still be over 100 degrees. Uh, and everybody's working. Everybody's physically busting their butt. Uh, there's sweat. There's tears. There's anger. There's joy. There's laughter. There's everything. And you've got your 25 students typically paired off. Uh, they're working on a particular area of a day. Uh, there's two instructors, Charlie and myself. There's a couple of grad students, excuse me, there's a couple of teaching assistants who were the stars from the previous year that were invited back and were constantly hiking and roaming around between these groups and checking in. And I would always say stuff like, well, you know, the, sometimes they'll be so kind of amped that they're like starting to ask their question or talk before I even get within earshot, you know, and I'll just kind of wave them off. Finally, get close enough. Oh, okay. Let's let's sit down for a second here. Oh, okay. Let's take a deep breath. Oh, but she told me we were here, and I no way. I said we weren't here, and that I that group over there. I'm pretty sure they've got schist, and that's bullshit because I I don't think they do. That fault's got to come up through here somewhere. All right, let's just take take a deep breath. Okay, where do you think you are on the map? Okay, I agree. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I like where you are. I agree. Now, what do you think you have right here? Let's, let's, let's try to think about this logically. Well, we just don't know. We don't know. We're all confused. I just drew all these lines, and now i got to change them. This is like three days or three hours worth of work. I, I'm, now my partner wants me to change this whole thing. So I, stop. Relax. What part of your map do you like the best? What, what, what area with the topographic maps do you, you knew where you were for sure and you were very confident what, what rock unit you had? You had some Paleozoic limestone and you've got it stamped on your rock very clearly. Oh, right over here. Okay, well, we're not going to mess with that, right? Good. Now, do you have another area that you like? That you have it mapped well? You're not going to change it? Yes, right over here. Next ridge. Good. So where's our swamp? Where's our area that's a little bit messy? We've lost the, the narrative. Well, right where you're standing, dumbass. Why'd you come over here to try to help us? Okay, all right. Listen, do you know who I am? Yeah, you're the dumbass who came over here to try to help us, and we're all fucking pissed off. Okay, all right. Yes, this is the area that's a trouble spot. Let's leave it. What do you mean, let's leave it? Ah, well, I've been out here a while with students. You just called me a dumbass. I can handle that. I'm not going to overreact. 
leave the area, go somewhere else, map it. That will be nice and simple. And once you get enough simple spots mapped correctly and you have confidence in them, then you can come back to these areas that you have question marks on. When you get overwhelmed and super bummed about the complexity, leave the area. We need enough good, clearly mapped areas first before we can solve these other problems. So tempers rise, etc., uh, frustration, oftentimes tears. I'm not kidding now. If you haven't ever experienced this, you're probably a little bit like, whoa, that sounds intense. But the intensity of the experience, of course, in retrospect, and we as humans convert that oftentimes into pleasure and joy and nostalgia. And we went through that together. And I'll finish the episode with this using those topographic maps in the field, having that experience for 20 years, teaching that class every September, you develop a deep connection with these students. And they develop a deep connection with each other. It's 15 days every September, and we're eating all of our meals together. We're on the same schedule for driving out to the field, etc. We spend all of our time together for 15 days. And, of course, it's not just geology. We end up talking about life and other things. And uh, um, we remember earlier times in our lives uh, fondly, oftentimes, when we have that kind of core connection with people of our age and we're doing things together, whether it's socially or otherwise. So this, this field course experience is pure and one of my favorites. It's also exhausting as an instructor. So I no longer do it. It was time for a new challenge, and and it's time for younger faculty to be involved in the course. And so that course still exists, both our introduction to field methods and our summer field. And that's actually how I'll finish this episode, because it was time for me to move on, because I was still stuck to mapping on contour lines. This is the old portion This is the old person portion of the podcast. Uh, I'm pretty good at at swinging with new things, but in this case, I was taught a very specific 20th century method that had been done most of the 20th century. And now when I'm out occasionally with field mappers, uh, gone are the paper topographic maps quite often. Uh, gone are the aerial photographs with the mylar overlays and the stereo glasses in the field. That's really gone. We used to do that in the bishop class. And phased in is GPS and ways to use um, plotting points. I'm going to stop right there because I don't even really know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it's a step forward to locate yourself much more accurately not really using contour lines anymore, but using some other things uh, to, uh, you know, the rocks don't change. The, the ability to identify rocks hasn't changed. The ability, ability to see things three-dimensionally has not changed. But the mechanics of locating yourself and plotting things uh, on a base map have changed. And uh, we need another person to, to elaborate on that. Um, 
It was interesting. I was talking to some field mappers who are in their 30s, and they were taught, you know, 10 years ago to use topographic maps and paper maps like I've been discussing today. And, uh, and yet their professional lives as mappers is not doing that. So they've, they've kind of gone through this professional change themselves. And um, so the, the academic world is a little bit behind where the professional mappers are. But uh, uh, there's no, it's the, still the same skills, the same necessary um, mental gymnastics needed. Uh, but the medium has changed a bit. I think we're going to stop there with contour lines, topographic maps, being in the field as a student or a teacher, and trying to put this all together. Who knows where we go next? Do we go to rock identification next as a podcast? Do we go back to the uh, audio clips from interviews with some prominent geologists that we've interviewed in the past? Only time will tell. Listener, thank you. Thank you, thank you, goodbye.